Upstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 17, recorded May the 4th, 2022. I guess May the 4th be with you is the thing I'm supposed to say. I'm Jason Snell, and joined by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you, yes. I, I Sorry, I misstated it as the actual thing and not the... You know what? It works. It's, it's all good. You think Disney Plus really wished that Obi-Wan could premiere today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I don't know. Like, I'm kind of like, do they wish they had something more Star Warsy to go off than just a trailer? But also, they're getting so much hype from the trailer alone that I think them being like, we have a whole month to premiere this, yeah. we have something for Star Wars Day, and also we get to go up against Stranger Things is like working for them. Yeah, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth. It. I yeah. just had that moment where I thought, I wonder earlier in this process if they were hoping that this would be a premiere on May fourth, but it's not. It's coming later this month though. So. Everybody get ready. Get excited. Uh, I have a little follow-up. We, we talked about Netflix a lot in our emergency episode, and there's a yes. few, like, three Netflix topics that I wanted to get to on this episode. Um, the uh, first is that they we talked about, uh, you know, what is it with things being announced while we talk about them on this podcast, and then they get killed? It's It happened again. Netflix's blog, to dumb uh, like the sound. Uh, I appreciate that you did the sound effect. <laughs> Uh, they laid off a bunch of people. So they were, the whole idea was they were going to create a blog, but it was going to be like from Netflix about Netflix stuff with behind the scenes and interviews and features and stuff. And apparently, although they say they're not shuttering the site, it, apparently a bunch of the people they hired uh, to do this site got laid off. So, so much for that. So here's the thing is that it's really easy to be obnoxious in this moment and say like, this seemed like the way it was going to go when they first announced it. Um, the site had no real web traffic. It was um, a PR arm run by a bunch of former journalists and current journalists who really thought they could make something special out of it with the backing of Netflix dollar. Like, I I don't doubt that. Um, but it never really seemed to find its place. You know, it was kind of designed like a, a, go, a, a 2008 blog, which, I mean, I say with love. Like, I, that was my favorite era sure. of the internet. Um but, you know, there, it just didn't feel like it was necessary in 2022. And so that's the really obnoxious, you know, but obvious kind of take on it. And I, what I will say is that I think Tudum is a great example of Netflix just harnessing in its spending across the board and kind of looking at its marketing department has some major issues. The head of marketing just left, Boz, um, not to be confused with Boz at Facebook. Uh, and um, so, you know, and, and her, she left and it was like a controversial um, departure if you kind of ask people in the space. Um, the marketing team itself is kind of been all over the place with what they're trying to do and it's a really difficult job especially when netflix has so much content that you're trying to market and you're trying to make everything land like i give that team a lot of credit um but to dumb was kind of this why don't we try it out and spend a lot of money on it um and see where it goes without any real strategy behind it from people above the to dumb team who are overseeing all of marketing at least from what i could tell and so the effect is a lot of really talented people being laid off at a really really terrible time yeah. um and i think we're going to see much more of this. Right before we we started the podcast, there was a report in the information about how Netflix is um, reorganizing and restructuring. It's uh, not reorganizing, excuse me, restructuring the idea 
uh, behind how managers can spend on hiring, which is basically a way of saying, like, we want talent, but we're not going to spend an egregious amount of money. And we're going to be much more careful with our titles and how those titles equate to compensation. And this is something that really reiterates, once again, that Netflix is not within the tech space the same way that Google and Facebook are and Apple, where they can kind of go and say, like, sure, this is how we're going to ensure talent, uh, the best talent acquisition. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And it's just really upsetting that to dumb, even if it seemed almost doomed from the get-go. I know people poured a lot of their heart and blood and sweat and tears into it. And so it's just, you know, it's devastating. Yeah. And it's a new new world at Netflix, uh, for sure. Um, you did a few threads in the last couple of weeks about something we've been talking about here back and forth a lot about um, the decision to make your show a binge drop where you do just drop it all at once versus a, w- a weekly release. Um, and uh, another thread that I thought was interesting about um, long-running sitcoms and Netflix, the value Netflix got out of that kind of comfort viewing, especially in the earlier days of Netflix. And yet it's it's reluctance over the last decade to build a show, you know, like that. Very few Netflix shows last any length of time, especially comedies. Um, I know you mentioned that there are exceptions to the rule, right? Like BoJack Horseman, but there aren't that many. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of thoughts behind it, but I think one of the parts I mentioned in the tweet thread, which is really important to this conversation, is the revenue metrics or the revenue uh, inclination for a Netflix original is quite different from a broadcast show. Uh, With a broadcast show, it is a time slot that you then sell to advertisers. It is why Nielsen is still very important to broadcasters because they work for the, you know, effectively it's really great for the advertisers to know what demographic and reach is happening with that program in that space. Which is a long way of saying you can get a lot more mileage sometimes out of a decent sitcom on a broadcaster than you are in terms of revenue, in terms of what that broadcaster is going to earn, um, than, than you would at Netflix necessarily where everything is subscription, subscriber growth and subscriber retention. Like that's the, the main metric. It's why they have an efficiency metric. That said, this made it easier for sitcoms to run five plus seasons than once they hit, you know, 100 episodes, five seasons in, they could get syndicated and that created a whole new revenue stream. And so it became a really profitable business for broadcasters to be in sitcoms. Like it was an easy thing to put on. Advertisers liked it. It was a great, you know, Modern Family ran 11 seasons. Like there's a reason that these things happen. Blackish, Blackish is still running. Um, on Netflix, that gets really, really hard to do. If the audience isn't going to show up you know, by the second season and halfway through the second season, they're probably not going to show up for a third season. And if you don't have that additional revenue structure coming in, it's really difficult to say like, well, we're going to keep doing it. So part of me is actually hopeful that that will change with advertising is that if Netflix were to bring in advertising and that is increases revenue, we actually might see sitcoms ah. run a bit, a little bit longer. And, and to your point, Jason, like Netflix has done this, you know, Grace and Frankie, I think ran like seven seasons and The Ranch, which is a show no one remembers from, I think it was Chuck Lorre. I'm, I, maybe I, I could be wrong about that, ran like, you know, six seasons and BoJack ran six seasons. And BoJack was always um, the least expensive because it was an animated uh, a series. But there's this idea that like there is an audience on Netflix for sitcoms. And especially we can see that with like the ratings and the viewership, not the ratings, but the viewership for classic sitcoms like New Girl still does really well. And this came up because Shit's Creek is going to Hulu and Shit's Creek is really valuable. Um, obviously, Friends in the Office were extremely valuable to Netflix when they were there. And now they're very valuable to HBO Max and Peacock. Um, so sitcoms are still, you know, and it's why Netflix spent a lot of money on Seinfeld. Net- sitcoms are still a really big deal. And I just happen to really love them. But they're much harder to 
con- to build a kind of continued audience with. And so that's why we see a lot more dramas and sci-fi come into play because they're t- they tend to be bigger subscriber acquisition drivers. Um, and in terms of retention, um, you get a lot of animation, which is really great. You get a lot of procedurals, which is really great. And then the sitcoms that did run five, six, seven seasons where people are like, I want to watch New Girl over and over again. I want to watch 30 Rock. Like those are the ones that tend to do well on Netflix. And so there's this kind of, constant back and forth about whether or not you can create a sitcom in 2022 that can, you know, rival a sitcom in 2005 that can rival a sitcom in 1995, you know, in 19, you know, 1969, 1975. Like, what, do we get another mash? Do we get another all in the family? Like, what happens to that moment? Um, and and it's really hard because the, the, the monetary structure has changed so much. But I think we're getting into a new era especially with this new targeted ad era, especially as comedy is comedy kind of ebbs and flows in terms of peaks and valleys. And we're in a peak of a a comedy we're coming back into one. And so I'm really hopeful that we get some new sitcoms in the streaming era out of this, especially as advertising and targeted advertising becomes more of a thing. Um, But right now, when I sent out that tweet, it was when I think Schitt's Creek, it was the day before Schitt's Creek announced it was going to Hulu. Um, And I was just like, man, you know, like, the minute New Girl leaves Netflix, like, I'm kind of done with Netflix. Like, I don't open it to begin with, and I really only open it for New Girl, like, if I want to rewatch it, or if I want to watch 30 Rock. Like, it's it's only for sitcoms that I imagine will eventually leave Netflix to go back to their um, their homes. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it was just, it was just a, a thought where I was like, the sitcom is a really interesting entity in the streaming wars because it's such a good thing for retention, but only certain titles are and without that revenue structure it's really really difficult to get new sitcoms in a streaming first environment if you don't have that ad backing where you're like sure we're going to put on the show at 7 you know 38 p.m on a thursday and like advertisers just want to be on nbc at that point yeah this is this is the weird example where having a network attached to your streaming service is an advantage because mm-hmm. you can try out these sitcoms and the ones that hit you'll let you know you'll run them and run them and run them. I know I mentioned this here before. My wife and I are just about done now with watching Superstore on Peacock and we never watched it when it was on NBC, but the, it built up 100 episodes or whatever and then we're able to sort of like plow through that maybe one or two uh a day, you know, yeah. one every night ish and like that that's NBC's advantage, as strange as it is, and we think about the broadcast networks as being kind of weighing down the future of those companies, which is on streaming. But it does allow them to sort of spread out their their risk and place bets and get ad revenue and all of that. And and that it's just funny because Netflix has has been so successful in proving that people want to binge those things and just have the comfort of watching those long running sitcoms. But Netflix's model is not very good at developing them. It's just. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But the, the economics of why things work or do not work in streaming is like one of my favorite ongoing topics. Now, okay, so the other the other part of this question then, which mm-hmm. is what makes something a weekly release and what makes something a uh, you might as well just drop it all at once. Yeah. So the the, the quintessential um, example that comes up all the time with this conversation is Squid Game, right? Like, had Squid Game released weekly, would it have been as big as it was? And my theory is no. My theory is people needed the language barrier, the fact that there weren't any actors outside of um, South Korea and parts of Asia, I would argue. There weren't many people who knew who those actors were. You know, always some, always some, but not many people. Um, The idea that the first episode is gripping, but it's really not until the second, third episode that you really get into it, which is classic HBO style. Like HBO shows are almost infamous for kind of being like by episode four, you're super invested. Um, 
but it takes a while. That's a really hard thing when it's in a different language to get people that globally at that scale to care about. But because of the binge, because people could go through it and watch it all at once, it became much easier um, to get people hooked on it because they said, you got to check it out. It's nine episodes. You can do it in like a, a weekend. And people did. I do think the longevity of the, the value of that the, the, um, comes from uh, – sorry, the longevity and the value that – is not created because of the weekly drop is uh, uh, an aspect that we have to talk about in this discussion, which is once people watch it, let's say we got three, four weeks out of Squid Game, you know, versus nine weeks versus the stragglers who still come in after nine weeks. Let's say it's 12 weeks. Like, that's a huge thing. That's like a retention thing. That's a subscriber acquisition thing. That is like uh, people still talking about it for 12 weeks versus three weeks. Like, all of these things come into play and then the binge becomes really harmful. But but I, but would that show have worked on a weekly basis? Probably not. And another example, you know, something like um, Our Flag Means Death, which had a really weird release schedule. It was like two episodes, the first three episodes, then it was two episodes, then it was like one episode, then it was two episodes. Like they did a really weird thing and the whole, they wrapped the whole thing up in like four weeks. Um, but I think that show really benefited from a weird release schedule because the people tuned in for the first three episodes and they're like, ah, maybe, maybe not. Some people tuned in for the next two episodes and then word of mouth really picked up. And by the time the seventh and eighth episode aired, which is when things get really great in that show, there had been this group that had been already creating fan art and TikToks and whatever who was stuck with it. And now there was enough of it because it's a streaming platform for other people to come in and say, OK, I'm going to watch this now. And, and you kind of create this long tail conversation. So I think when we talk about it, there's always this debate about like, do you only do weekly? Do you only do binge drop? Do you do a combination of like three episodes and then, you know, weekly, which I think is where the majority of them will end up landing. Um, the majority of them, I should say that do not have deals with, um, cable carriers. So therefore like HBO, it would be really hard for HBO to say like, we're going to drop three things on HBO max and not on HBO. Mm -hmm. Uh, cause people would get very upset in the cable world, uh, by that. Um, but, there's the, the the better question is the value what value proposition uh do you get from each of these releases and more importantly what job are they accomplishing with these releases you know each different release method has a different job whether that job is to get people uh, give something, uh, uh, give people something to kind of watch it, uh, at the end of the night, whether that is something that they're just going to return to, whether that's something that they're going to just, um, kind of put on the background. Like you can drop that as a binge. I think a great example is like selling sunset, which is one of Netflix's bigger reality shows that thing drops all at once. And even then, like they've split up seasons a little bit. So they are kind of experimenting already with release where they're saying like, what if we do, you know, two seasons, what if we do a season, but we, we split it in half, which is what they're doing with stranger things. And they go, this is something we can do, but you can do it with those types of shows because it's like sure um i'm gonna put it on the background or i'm gonna watch it at night and i can kind of choose it on, i'm gonna do it on my own it doesn't really affect the longevity of, of the value of that title but something like obi-wan something like moon knight something like um euphoria or lord of the rings like you a house of the dragon you really want that weekly you want the full eight to ten weeks of conversation, of getting it out there. You want people to be able to come to it afterwards and have the next, you know, three, four weeks built in as stragglers come to. And that model, the weekly model is basically what we are still arguing when we say that theatrical releases are still necessary for franchise development. Like what, what we're saying is that idea of like, you're in theaters for 70 days and or 30 days, 30 to 70 days. And then you're on Blu-ray and then you're on digital and then you're on streaming. And there's like these little peaks that kind of keep coming back up. It's effectively what we're kind of saying with the weekly drop, which is every week there's something for people there's a reason people open the app and reason for them to talk and then they talk about it and it creates this long um, spell. 
But that's understanding the job of those titles that you're spending $100 million on versus a title that you're spending, you know, $10 million on. Like what you're trying to do is give consumers this kind of never ending sea of content, but you do not have to release everything the same way because not everything is valued mm. the same way. Not everything has the same job. And so I think we, I just want us to get out of this mindset of like, we can only do one or the other. Netflix is already experimenting with this. They do weekly releases for some of their reality shows because um, they want like the ones that they know people are going to be talking about, like their version of Love Island. Like they know that's going to be a thing. Um, Netflix is also doing this by splitting seasons into half. And they're like, you're going to get one in this month and you're going to get one three months later. And that's their way of saying, like, stick around. Like, we hope that we keep this conversation going. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more, again, of the three-episode drop at first and then weekly because that's just a good way of getting people hooked and then they're coming back. And then I will – I think you will see with the, some of the biggest shows, you will see that continued weekly release because the amount of effort and time and money they're putting into it, they want that long tail. Yeah, it's I I'm a big uh, proponent of the idea that not everything fits into one box and that it's a more complicated thing. And people who are saying it should always just be a binge drop. I always fought against that and said, no, there's value in having a weekly release. The the opposite is true. Not everything is is right for one thing or another. And yeah. and I think we're getting there now. Um, now, speaking of which, and this is a little bit of a, a shift of gears, but it, it's actually related, which is um, things we assumed about streaming and how the world was going to be different that are turning out to not be, the, you know, not be what we thought. Like we thought, oh, everything's going to just be in a season release and mm. it's going to be like Netflix. And it turns out that the trend is now, well, actually a lot of stuff, especially the high profile stuff, is going to be a weekly release because you can build more kind of interest in it. Another thing that I think a lot of us assumed was about um, the ad experience so i wanted right. to i wanted to ask you about that that the idea that um almost everybody now is going to have an ad tier and we got an email from penguin listener penguin uh or it was a tweet because penguin tweets uh saying i tried to watch a movie on imdb tv by accident and it was a terrible experience and they, <laughs> they're unlike tv where the scripts sort of lead into an ad break the ads just kind of like pop in this happened to me too i was watching mm-hmm. um one of my favorite plot uh one of my favorite podcasts the flop house did a uh a commentary track for cats and cats is available on streaming on peacock but strangely it's on peacock everybody sees ads it's even if you pay for the no ads version of peacock oh yeah you still have to see ads for for cats i don't entirely understand this weird We've talked about this before. Some weird contract deal deals going on there, um, but uh, in that, like, it was like ten second with no again no warning, a ten second uh, promo for something on Peacock or something. I think maybe that's because I was a pre- Peacock no ad person. Is that the ads were for Peacock instead of being ads that were ads? But still, it was super disconcerting because that's a movie, of course, and it doesn't have act breaks in it. And this is Penguin's point. So I wanted to ask you, now that everybody is going to have an ad tier, practically, are all the TV shows that are made for streaming going to start having ad breaks? I mean, this is already true of something like Paramount Plus, where back in the CBS All Access days, an ad tier was always part of the idea. Plus, they wanted to sell it theoretically to international TV, commercial TV. So like every Star Trek has still has ad breaks and it still has a fade out end of act two fade in beginning of act three what do you think are we going to start seeing shows structured around ad breaks now that everybody's got an ad tier the bigger question is which of these companies have the ad tech to really implement this at scale and not create a disruptive experience and not create an experience. You know, I said this on Twitter, like the most successful ad campaign an OTT platform can have is for people to not comment on the ads at all. Like that's kind of what you want where you're like, I pay for the ads. I don't even m- mention it because they're so 
non-intrusive. Like that's the ideal situation because you're never going to have someone say, wow, these ads are great. The exception I always bring up is YouTube TV because they're just very good at being like, take a second. And they're not ads. Like that's what they, they basically are like, hey, we can't show you this ad. Here's polar bears lying around. And you're like, great. This is awesome. Um, that's not going to happen with Netflix and them because they, they're trying to get advertising space. And so they're going to work with advertisers. But they don't have the ad tech. Like they don't have the ad tech to support at that scale. And they don't have any – well, they, you know, I'm sure they'll hire from the broadcast side even more. But they don't have a, a team of people who are aware of how to integrate advertising into their product and not be uh, um, disruptive. They aren't aware – none of their shows are built for ad breaks at all because they're, they are – you know, and their, um, cat, their library is like nearly 50 percent, if not just over 50 percent totally originals. So that's a lot of shows have to figure out ad breaks for, which is why I th- – think what you'll see happening with Netflix more, especially especially at first, is a lot of pre-roll. I think you'll see a lot mm. of like, watch this ad. And because they're Netflix and because they have 220 million subscribers, which is still an insane amount of people, they can charge higher for those advertisers. Um, I think you'll also see a little bit of what my, hypotho- my hypothesis of what Peacock is doing, which is um, kind of editing in, not ads, but kind of product placement into shows. And the only way this works, by the way, which because it sounds terrible, the only way that works is if you work with the creative teams right. uh, to kind of be like, hey, how can we do this in a way that makes sense? You know, maybe there's some B-roll of like a street and you put up an ad for like Fanta, but people don't notice it because it's B-roll oh, yeah. of a street. Like, uh, like they're oh, just NBC. not NBC has always loved product placement as a concept, Ex- haven't they? Exactly. And so and so and all of it is bad, which is why we can comment on it, because we like it's bad enough that we're commenting. And I think for Netflix this company is so obsessed with um, their product being good. Like they're so obsessed with kind of this Netflix experience of even if the show quality is not necessarily the greatest, like the product experience tends to be really good. So my question is, which company do you buy for ad tech reasons? Because I think at this point you pull a, you know, Disney buying a BAM. Right. I think you, you don't say we're going to hire 100 people to figure it out. We're going to buy a team or yeah. buy a company that's really good at this and figure it out. Um, but also, I think it's a lot of pre-rolls. And I don't think it's, like, two commercial pre-rolls. I don't think you do the Hulu thing. Remember when Hulu would, ro- would have, like, four pre-roll ads? And it, right. by the time you were done with the ads, you didn't want to watch anything? And, see, and it was the same four ads every and time. It was the same four ads. I think Netflix <laughs> will go the route of HBO Max, where HBO Max figured out pretty decently how to do ads. Um, I mean, they're still disruptive. And that's why I can be like, I can know this. Because I, I notice when those ads are there. Um, but I think Netflix... Getting into ads is not going to be a, a – and this is something they've clearly been thinking about for some time, uh, even if they have not publicly said that. And it's something that they are where they need to do in order to continue spending at the level they're spending and if they're losing subscribers. Um, you know, and their first issue is like fixing the quality of their content. But there's, uh, but the second thing is like when you bring those ads in, because people are so used to a Netflix experience that is pretty good, like from a tech point of view, um, you're going to have to figure out how to make this as least disruptive as possible, which means doing kind of fun pre-roll stuff that almost pokes fun at itself. If anyone here has ever gone to like Alamo to, to see a movie, I think Alamo does really good like commercially self like promotion things where they kind of bring in um, a sponsor or whatever, but they do it in a really funny way and they kind of poke fun at it. And I like, like 30 rock did with NBC, right? Yeah. NBC was like, Can we have our money now? and 30 rock was like, sure, <laughs> we'll make fun of it. And here it is. Um, yep. And I think Netflix has to figure out a way to kind of make this feel innovative and which is a terrible word that I hate gets associated with tech ad technology. Cause it's like, sure, but it, it does have to feel innovative and fresh and it has to feel like, 
native to the platform, which is bizarre because advertising is so inherently not native to the platform. Um, here's something I really hope we don't see is uh, like on screen, um, uh, effectively like on screen programmatic ads that are kind of like a banner ad. Like I don't want to see a banner ad anywhere. Like I don't want this to feel like a website. Uh, and so I think it's it's difficult like to to create a, a, an advertising business that really works seamlessly, that that appeals to advertisers who, by the way, would like if your whole screen just like flashed Pepsi for an hour, like who want to be in the most, they're in the most obvious way. And then creatives who are like, I hate advertising. I get that it's, you know, a necessary evil, but like, I don't want advertising my programming. And then with the product teams at Netflix who are so used to not having advertising and are now trying to figure out a way to do this without it being intrusive and obnoxious is really difficult. You know, I know it's difficult because every other streamer who comes from a broadcast background who's aware of advertising is still trying to figure it out. Like, and they're trying to be like, NBC Universal has one of the biggest ad teams and ad tech departments in the world. And they're still kind of like, how do we get this right for Peacock? You know, we're figuring out the OTT space. Netflix is now on the opposite end of it. Netflix is in the OTT space. They're they're arguably still the best at it in many ways, even if their valuation is down. Like, I think Netflix is still have, has a leg up. Um, in terms of quality uh, from from a user experience perspective, advertising changes everything, and it's so much harder. Go ask any editor who will uh, at any uh, blog who will tell you about advertising on their website. Like it's so hard to get right that when we get it, when it does get right, you're kind of like ah, that's great. Like it, you almost don't comment on it because it's so like just native to the experience. Um, and so I, I worry about Netflix not getting it right. And I think Netflix does not have the ability, the luxury right now to get it very wrong. Like Netflix has to kind of come out and it's, it's, you know, decent. Um, but I also think this is, um, a move Netflix has had to move toward. I, I think I said on the podcast last time that, Netflix wanted to be HBO Max before uh, wanted to be HBO before HBO was Netflix and they got to that point and now they realize that HBO can do ads because HBO Max has ads and they're kind of going like well I guess if they're doing it right and Disney's doing it and everyone else is doing it we can do it um and they can charge a pretty pretty dollar for for their they, they have a huge audience like and global audience I mean that's that's the thing is as long you know everybody who's thinking oh I hate ads I'm I'm just going to pay to not see them that's great um but there are also people who don't want to pay uh, what they're paying or aren't willing to pay regularly at all who will get this. And there are also marketers out there who would love to reach the Netflix audience, right? And that's been a black box. It's like, no, you can't. You don't have access to our customers. And now they're going to be able to give access to their customers and also all of Netflix's data, presumably targeting specific kinds of Netflix customer based and putting those spots in the right places in the programming for those customers. So there's there's money to be made. I just I sometimes I wonder if it will also lead to Netflix saying like any show that's over over 40 minutes of runtime or over 50 minutes of runtime needs to have an act break. <laughs> Just please, or over 20 minutes or over whatever it is, like above this, we'd like you to put in an act break just so that we can put in an ad uh, or whether they'll be like, you know, it's fine. People like to binge shows, so they're going to get um, pre-rolls and then they're going to get more pre-rolls before the next episode airs and it's going to be plenty for us. I, I, I do wonder about the specifics of it, but people will be falling over themselves to reach the Netflix audience. I, I really do believe that they have wanted that for years and have not had access to them because if there are no ads, you can't buy it. You can't buy at least traditionally access to those people. 
Yeah, and let us be very clear because there's a lot of bad headlines about this where every headline I read is like Netflix is forcing people to get ads or Netflix is like Netflix is going advertisement supported. And like, no, 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 no. Like Netflix is very much like we would like you to pay for the non-ad option, but like we want you to pay. Like we would like you to come in and pay for the one that you want for people to, to Jason's exact point, for people who do not want to spend $15 a month on Netflix because they don't think Netflix is worth $15.50, especially on HBO Max, which is arguably at this moment in time from a content perspective, the better streaming service. Uh, it's $15. It's actually 50 cents cheaper than Netflix. Um, and they're going over there. For people who want to spend like seven bucks, eight bucks on Netflix and get access to everything still, this is who that's for. Netflix is not saying like, hey, you're paying $20 a month for, you know, your 4K access and your five screens or whatever it might be. You are now getting ads on top of that. They would much prefer you, I imagine, to go that route because that proves their hypothesis. The issue is that many of us have clearly shown that we are not interested in that. Like we are saying like, "Mm, even $15 is a little bit too expensive for me, my dude, like especially when there's other competition. So Netflix is forced to go, if we're gonna have if we're gonna have people come onto the app to watch their new favorite show, we have to give people their best option to come onto the app, and that includes a ad supported uh, tier. And like, it's it's funny. I just see all these headlines that are like, "This is the end of the world." Like, Netflix is changing forever, and it's like they're adding a, a tier that will have ads. It's a big deal. I'm not trying to be like this is not a big deal, but it's not like they're saying everyone is getting ads. It's them saying there's going to be a tier that has ads, and we suspect that it'll be a pretty large tier. Same that Disney feels the same way. HBO Max, the 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 Warner guys came out and said that it was. They were like, you know, our biggest growth has come from advertisement, like from that tier. Like, of course, it's a big deal. But if you want to pay your $15 a month for Netflix, which is what I pay, and you don't want ads, and you're comfortable spending that, and you have the luxury to say, you know, I'd rather not watch with ads, and I'll just pay for it, like, your your plan is fine. Nothing is going to change. Right. Yeah. It, this is this is not like Netflix is all going to just insert ads now. It's it's fine. But people will be able to pay less than they're paying now and get Netflix with ads, right? Which. I got, oh, by the way, here's my little CNN Plus update, which is I got a very nice email from them saying they were going to refund my money. And then another email saying, as a thank you, we're going to give you a month free of Discovery Plus oh, yeah. with ads. And I thought, nah, I'm, a, I'm good. I'm good. I have, I have a pretty strict, I'm, I'm, if I can pay to not see ads, I'm just going to pay to not see ads policy. But I thought it was nice of them to offer a free month of Discovery Plus, which is really essentially a trial, right? Because it's put in your credit card and then cancel before the month is over. And like, no, I'm good. I'm okay. Thanks, Discovery. I, I also appreciate that they wouldn't even give you the ad-free one. Like, yeah, was the ads right? <laughs> right. They also no, 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 no. That's value. We gotta, we gotta keep that value. I'm like, all right, well. Um, speaking of ads, we have one. <laughs> That was such a good segue. For access. So I mean, we're talking about ads, so it <laughs> so was easy. We also have one. Our sponsor is Pocket Casts. Uh, now, everybody out here, uh, you know, you're listening to this podcast somewhere. Uh, is it in an app? Is it in a web browser? Please tell me it's not in a web browser. How good is the app you're currently using to listen to this podcast? Do you like it or do you not like it? Does it get all your music in your podcast and your podcast and your music and it's just confusing? Does it have all the features that you want? Has it been thoughtfully designed by people who clearly understand who you are as a podcast listener because they are also podcast listeners? Maybe it's worth trying something new for your podcast listening. Pocket Casts. It's built by podcast listeners for podcast listeners like you. And no matter how you listen to podcasts, Pocket Casts has you covered. It seamlessly syncs your listening progress across iOS, 
and Android and the web. It supports both Amazon Alexa and Sonos smart speakers. It supports CarPlay, Android Auto, and Android Automotive support so you can listen in your car. You can enjoy their vibrant and constantly updated discovery section to find next the next podcast that'll be your favorite. It's a great section. They have Apple Watch support, including offline playback. I love the fact that you can load podcasts onto Apple Watch and then just go jogging without your phone and listen to podcasts. AirPlay support, Chromecast support, you name it. And and, and the platforms, just it's all supported. Um, it'll also even uh, automatically rewind your podcast a little bit if it's been a while since you listened uh, so you can get the context of uh, where you were when you when you stopped listening, which is really great. Um, very, so Just so clever. It's free to use, but they do have some premium features. See, it's, a, it's just like Netflix. Um, as a listener of this show, you get, it's not. Netflix is going to charge you whether you see ads or not, by the way. I just, I, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not buying your Netflix for you. You'll still have to pay for it. But they have this fun model where you can you can use Pocket Cast for free or pay a little and get a little extra stuff. So go to pocketcasts.com slash downstream to get the app, but also to redeem six months free with all their premium features in Pocket Cast Plus. Of course, it's got a plus at the end of it. And if you're already a Pocket Cast user, you can still do that. Um, try out Pocket Cast Plus for six months. Uh, on us, pocketcast.com slash downstream to find out more. Thank you, Pocketcast, for making a great app for many platforms and for supporting downstream. Now, I had one more uh, Netflix-related topic, which is Kim Masters wrote a story in The Hollywood Reporter, a big story, um, and it was sort of uh, keyed around the uh, the latest drama and Netflix results and all of that. But really, it's about... Um, the power clashes at, at Netflix, most notably that Cindy Holland, who is a Netflix executive uh, involved in programming, and she, this story says she had a lot of the really good Hollywood relationships and the really good taste that helped build Netflix's contact library. Um, by the way, also this story, just as a tidbit, <laughs> the story says that she said to Ted Sarandos, you should, I know Ted, I know uh, Dave Chappelle's your buddy, but you should probably not work with him anymore because he says a lot of stuff um, that is going to make the people here angry and it's going to get out and and do, you know, have bad press for Netflix. And of course, he did a special with transphobic comments in it and it exploded and it was really bad for Netflix and Ted Sarandos stood by his guy. But anyway, I thought it was a really great aside that, that the story is like, yeah, she warned about that and he just didn't listen. Um, also, this story says Ted Sarandos was really the mastermind of the volume strategy, uh, just as much stuff as we can put on that proved destructive to the culture and quality of Netflix original offerings. Um, I, obviously, this is, this story has a point of view, and, and the idea there is that she was building something of higher quality and that um, Ted Sarandos was more pushing for volume, 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 and now it's sort of maybe bitten them a little bit. I did, however get blown away by the fact that when they brought in a new executive, which is uh, Bella Baharia, um, and that, that she ended up in a different division and then she got the ability to buy shows kind of outside of what her original um, remit was. And you ended up in a situation where Netflix was passing on a show and then Netflix was picking it up in a different group, which just seems, that just seems bad. That seems like I mean, that, that's not, not a way to run a railroad, I guess is what I'm saying. What are you doing? It's a great expression. Uh, I, I think so. This is what Disney tried to solve with its reorganization, right? Like the idea was 
Kareem Daniel was going to be in charge of the distribution side and the creative guys who oversaw their um, verticals were going to be in charge of the creative side. And this became a whole conversation about green lighting power, about um, like the distribution dynamics, which is like P&L conversations, like profit and loss conversations are pretty boring to people who are not in the industry, but they are very important to people who run the industry. Like they want to be in full control of their finances because it gives them full control of their creative side and, and everything they're doing. Um, and also when they go to bat for their their team and their you know bonuses makes them look really good um disney changed that to operate more like google facebook apple which was this idea of like no no no, no like distribution like which is sales is much is different from um, creation like we are going to separate those things and netflix is kind of in this position where the green lighting power up until you know very recently was kind of all over the place uh, it was like, no, we don't need that for our section. But then someone else would come in. They're like, well, I oversee, you know, all of this. So I think we're going to do it. Or like, I well, I want this for the UK and it does well. And then it like does like, – it's a whole thing. Like it's just – it's really complicated. Um, and I think also what what Kim Master's story really brought up, which is this conversation that we've been having on Twitter for quite some time. And I'm sure people um, inside Netflix – at all levels are having the conversation. I'm sure people at other companies are having the conversation is, you know, do Reed and Ted pass their own keeper test? At this point, you know, Netflix has this famous test that they do, which is basically the idea that if um, if if somebody was going to come up uh, to say, like, I got another job somewhere, um, would you fight to keep them? And if you wouldn't fight to keep them at that point, you know, is it time to part ways with that employee? Like, that's right. kind of how Netflix has famously operated for quite some time. Um you know, Netflix is now down like over – it's like over what, like $200 billion in – like it's – sorry, in uh, valuation. Um, the quality of the content has diminished greatly. Uh, the investors are upset. Obviously, uh, employees are upset. It's a whole thing. At that point, if you're co-CEOs, do you pass your own keeper test? Um, and I think one of the best lines that came up in Kim's story that made me think about Ted quite a bit – and I give Ted credit. Ted – hugely ambitious guy who I think has done a, a, a remarkable job getting Netflix to where it has been as quickly as he has. Like I, I have nothing but respect for Ted Sarandos. Um, but there's a great line in the story that says Ted's a much better watcher than he is a picker. And this is the <laughs> thing. And I say this on the podcast a lot. This is why Casey Bloys and his team at HBO are so protected. It's why John Landgraf and his team at FX are so well, uh, are so um, well protected. It's why Dana Walden and Peter Rice at Disney are when and that before that when they were at Fox are well protected. It's why the curation team at A24 is corrected protected. The ability to pick not only what you think is just good, like what is an inherently good show or movie, but the ability to say also I think there's an audience for this and I think it will find the right audience and I think it will win us awards and I think it will bring in additional revenue, meaning subscribers or advertising. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a, a thing that cements us as our brand is one of the best brands. That is so insanely difficult to do. There are like 80 people who can do it like like it's it's a very difficult thing to get a bunch of scripts every single day look at actors look at directors talk to talent um which is why hollywood is such a talent heavy talent relationship heavy world uh and say yeah i think we want to bet on this guy sometimes super super duper works out uh a24 bet on ari aster they bet on robert eggers like 
like worked out for them pretty well. They've got huge directors uh, over at A24 who they work with over and over again. They bet on Euphoria. That worked out super well for them and, and HBO. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out as, as well. You know, uh, HBO famously signed Nick Pizzolatto, who is the creator of True Detective, to an overall deal in order to land um, True Detective at the time. And the first season was an immense hit. But then, you know, season two was an end. It's like it's a whole a season three kind of was great, but didn't really get the press. And so that's a big thing for HBO. But they're able to consistently prove that they're really good at picking content that people are going to like, that's going to help the brand um, survive and thrive in a very competitive industry. And I think what Ted has done is not necessarily that. And Ted had people like Cindy who could do it. And we're like, hey, I'm going to help build a brand. By the point that he brings in Bella, who I think has been given an an impossible task and I think is exceptionally good at her job, brings Bella into a world that is so data heavy, that is so like, well, our data shows us this. You're in an industry that doesn't, at this point, still really value data over relationships. Uh, they, They still very much look at data as, well, the way I've always said it, data should be a lighthouse. It is what helps you guide your decisions, but you need the creative director who's their captain to bring that boat safely into the harbor and for people to really trust. Um, And I think Netflix has the lighthouse. They have all the data in the world. That's like, here's theoretically, you know, and, and applicably what can help you grow an audience and, and what people want, but they don't have the captain to say like, yes, and I, people will trust me and I can get this boat safely into the harbor each and every time. I love that metaphor. Um, I, I think the, I mean, clearly this Kim Master story is coming from a perspective of people who are sort of Cindy Holland supporters and saying that that, that, yes. that you get the sense, because I always say this about tech stories too, but it goes for all stories, which is always consider what are the sources? Who is talking here? And so I think that there's a motivation here to say, um, please stop giving too much credit to Ted Sarandos for Netflix mm. creatively because Cindy Holland was one of the key people who got this off the ground and then she got undermined. And, um, but I think this story is remarkable in the sense that there are a couple of, of moments where even these very pro Cindy Holland sources, uh, are compassionate toward, uh, Bella Baharia. Um, there's yeah. a, one source says, look, it, it may be easy to blame her. Um, Kim Master says, but one source says, look, Reed and Ted are her bosses. The fish stinks from the head, uh, which is like, it's brutal, but it's not blaming her. She's the one who's following their orders. And then the other quote that I thought was really good in this story is a, a major Netflix talent says, absolutely, a culture shift happened when she left. Um, now it's a more prudent and indecisive group. But you gotta, you gotta say... There were no cost controls when Cindy was in charge. So it was an unsustainable business model. And I like that because it's like, okay, she did good work. She also did good work in a, in a, in a business model that Netflix can't follow anymore. That's not why she left necessarily, but you can't say, well, if only she had stayed, she'd keep working her magic because she wouldn't have the budgets that she had. So I like, I like as much as this is kind of a super... I don't want to say slanted because I think Kim Masters does a good job, but the, the sources are very clear in where they're coming from here. Uh, I still think that there were some moments of uh, pointing out that like it, this is more complicated than that. And Bella Baharia is not the problem. The problem is that the executives brought her in and then let her kind of scoop up things that were supposed to be Cindy Holland's. I just I, I took away from this. It reinforced a lot of the things that I kind of intuited about Netflix. And it makes me think, like you said, about like who passes the tests here, like that Netflix is in a moment where they're going to have 
have to change a lot of things. And it is potentially a moment where you have to say, um, how do we structure this? And who who leads us and who has the ability to make those relationships? And like you said, be the picker of this stuff and not just the watcher of it. And is it the people who are there? And does the fish stink from the head? Yikes. Uh, it's fascinating. Again, I think we can point to Apple TV Plus, right, as a great example. To your actual point just now, Jason, one, you've got a great creative team um, who can pick really good shows. But two, again, Apple has a lot of money. Uh, and so they're kind right. of able to say we're going to spend, you know, 40, 50, 70, right. 90, 100 million dollars. And you could still and- fail with with unlimited money. But yeah. but it's a lot easier to succeed with unlimited money than it is to succeed on a budget. Right. Like no. it's not the same game. Money, money does not equate to taste. Um, and so I think, but I, 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 I totally agree with you. I mean, the last thing I'll add, because I think you brought up a really great point, Jason, which is that there are a lot of the success gets appointed to Ted, right? And this is kind of the CEO thing in general, what if they fail, they take on the burden. And if they succeed, they take on the success. Um, but, you know, I think we still, we came out of the Steve Jobs, um, Eric Schmidt, uh, like era where everybody was obsessed with, you know, Elon era, right? We're there right now, where everyone was obsessed with founders and CEOs and this idea of like, these are the geniuses that did everything. And they're the reason this company succeeded and CEOs are obviously very important like they do have a vision for their company and they have a strategic um, direction they want to go in and and they're overseeing all their direct managers of huge companies but something like Hollywood requires script readers who are saying like I think there's something really good about this requires dinner with talent who is saying like I have this idea and I think it could really work for what you guys are doing it is this gut feeling on like from from Ten, from thousands of people who are like, I think there's something really special in this one script um, that they don't get a lot of credit for. And I think at Netflix, where I've heard, you know, time and time again from people who um, have worked there, who, who no longer do, uh, and from friends who report on Netflix, um, that like the, the, the biggest issue with Netflix is still that they're so, 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 so data reliant. Again, they're that lighthouse, but without really having the creative directors who can say like i'm also a good picker again data is extremely important especially when there's so much content like and there's such a huge audience and we have direct access to that audience via data like that like their their personal data that, that they give willingly um and their viewing habits that data is very important for people to have when they're going to make decisions that affect you know 250 million people on a platform but it's still a creative industry. It's an art. Like, and what we're doing is talking about art being made. And um, that is the, the 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 captain who's going to bring that heart, that ship in. And again, whenever I think about like the only time people bring up John Landgraf and Casey Bloyds is to be like, damn, FX and HBO are great. Yeah. Like it's never, it's never like, oh, about these guys. It's very much like they and their teams who they surround themselves with, um, who they pick to be their heads of comedy and drama or whatever it is. Are extremely good and i think you need a picker who's going to pick people who can pick shows uh and i think netflix is not lacking that in, in baja i think she's extremely talented i think she's lacking the support structure around yeah. her and that that was one thing about that quote that i kind of the fish stinks from the head part aside is it's sort of saying she could probably do a good job here but not the way that they're running it now because yeah. she's being asked to do something that's very different from what cindy holland was was asked to do and that comes from the top so yes. that, now they're going to change their playbook, maybe. So we'll see what happens. 
Um, all right, we, we'll finish with letters. Now, we got a bunch of letters, and I'm going to read a few of them here in a second. So last week we talked about, as we or two weeks ago, as we often do, uh, one of the great quandaries that HBO Max and Warner Brothers Discovery face, which is that they have this franchise in Harry Potter, but uh, that has lives in the minds of so many people as the book series and then the movie series. There's a second movie series that hasn't done very well. And when we were talking about it, I, we had a conversation that was mostly about the the business and creative challenges of getting that franchise into the streaming world. And as a part of that, and I will, I will absolutely own up to this. I have talked before about JK Rowling and her politics and her being a part of the gender critical group in the UK that is transphobic. And there are lots of other bad things about uh, JK Rowling things she believes that I think are uh, atrocious. And I think Julia also would agree are atrocious. I don't, I, I sort of felt like, I felt like it had been discussed enough that I, and it wasn't really what we were talking about that I kind of blew past it and said, you know, in addition to her being controversial for all these other reasons, she also has creative issues and heard a lot, especially from people in the UK where she is much higher profile and has much bigger impact on the social conversation in the UK that, uh, and it made me think, well, the truth is giving just stipulating that she's bad um, is not good enough because uh, it gives it gives her a chance to hide. It gives it gives her a pass on what she said and what she represents. And and that was not the intent of giving it a. I wasn't meaning to give her a pass. I just figured, do we need to go through it again? Do we need to litigate it again every time we mention her? And the answer is a little bit. Uh, so I would like to read three three excerpts. These are these are long letters, but I want to read three excerpts from people who wrote in after. Our uh, not the emergency episode, but the episode before that, where we talked about the quandary of how do you do Harry Potter? Uh, if you're Warner Brothers Discovery, what do you do? Um, so Ryan wrote in. And one of the things Ryan said was something about the discussion of Harry Potter and Warner Brothers didn't quite sit right with me. Um, I, I don't appreciate that a lot of the controversy surrounding J.K. Rowling was glossed over because she's been an active participant in making those views mainstream in the U.K., which has led to policy changes that are dangerous for trans people in the country. While I know both of you don't share those views, I do feel like glossing over her controversies is an endorsement of them in the sense that it's protecting the people who hold the, hold the harmful views and not protecting those who are harmed by those views. In addition, I also feel an argument could be made that bringing those views up on the show adds more depth and dimension to the topic because her being a problematic figure could also be an issue for WB strategies with how to handle the Harry Potter franchise. Um, thank you, Ryan. I I do think we have brought it up before, but I didn't. It wasn't the focus last time, so that was why. But I think we've brought it up before that she's she's it, look. There's a whole can of 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 uh, what did Steve Jobs call it? A bag of hurt involving working with J.K. Rowling and doing things. And 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 uh, I gave short shrift to uh, an important part of it. Um, I don't I, I don't think it's fair to say uh, that glossing over them is an endorsement of them. I think that's a bridge too far. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that uh, not mentioning them and giving her room to hide and those for those views to hide is not appropriate. So yeah. thank thank you, Ryan. Um, anything there or I think I'll just say that I agree with everything with everything that our um, listeners have sent us uh, and I also do I feel bad that we did gloss over it because it was not my intention to even indirectly um, 
show any kind of pass or support of oh yeah transphobic comments uh yeah. and i i and very I, much was... intended it as being okay we all know she's bad right but also she's bad in this whole other way and that was giving the one thing a lot of detail and the other thing a pass and they aren't bad in that or like the amount yeah. of time we spent on the second one the second one's not more important than the first one it's yeah. just that I, I i just kind of blew through it because it's like we all know right but i i think that that a little more sunlight on it is probably required just just blowing through it is probably not good enough yeah i i will just say um because i want to give a voice to our readers um because i have some very important thoughts so i don't want to comment too much on it but i will say i uh unequivocally um condemn any form of transphobic comment that is made by anyone, um, especially a creator of a series that many people, is, uh, many queer people, um, es- yeah. especially found found solace in when they were younger. Uh-huh. So, exactly, yeah, I condemn all of those comments. Absolutely. All right. Kate wrote in and said, uh, Rowling becoming becoming a figurehead of the anti-trans turf movement here in the UK, bringing those views to a much wider mainstream audience and funding their efforts has led to a terrifying climate for trans people like myself who live in the UK and are affected by the ever-growing backlash against us. As someone who is not going to be touching any officially licensed Harry Potter property unless Rowling is no longer involved, it is an issue that I feel should be given a greater weight in this discussion. Am I far from the only former, question mark, fan of the series that feels this way uh no i am far from the only uh hp was an escape for me when i didn't feel like i fit in uh, so my feelings of betrayal toward jk run deep especially as someone as julia said on the show made harry potter a key part of my life and identity for many years that's from kate and um oh, i just want to yeah. add because i realized i did this and i didn't mean to do uh i when i said um queer folk i included myself in that but i also realized that uh orientation and gender are two different things and so um just wanted to also point like i didn't want people to think yeah. i said queer is a way of including trans people like i i, inclu- I just including uh, b- uh people in general who are really hurt by her comments um i condemn all those comments and i apologize you know that we did we did gloss over it. Yeah, so. and we and we feed into you know it feeds into a larger group that she's cozying up to in the UK. I, I think the fact that we got a, a bunch of comments from people in the UK shows that yes. the UK uh, people are not as uh, insulated as we are from it. Where it's like, well, oh yeah. wow, she's 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 bad. I blocked her on Twitter. I I I her views are are unpleasant. Um, but she's like she's basking in it and doing events and is a part of the conversation in the UK in a way that she is not in the US and it is as uh as Ryan and Kate both said is leading to a climate uh in the UK that is uh extremely bad. <laughs> and so she's a more active participant in especially the culture of this in the UK than um, I think that people in the US understand. Uh, one last note. This is from Maddie Gray and TM. Uh, J.K. Rowling has on multiple occasions lessened or denied the experience of transgender persons in favor of the experience of cisgender women and has given a platform to others who believe trans people do not deserve to feel safe, accepted, or believed about their experience. She has such an impact on the global consciousness that it is harmful not to spread the word about her actions. Arguing that Warner Brothers should create more series and movies, thereby giving J.K. Rowling truckloads of money, is arguing for giving financial support to a person who will turn around and use that capital to fund charities and organizations who wish to harm transgender people. We We love the world surrounding Harry Potter, but we can no longer support a woman who would deny the experiences of some of our best friends and actively campaign for endangering them. That's Maddie Gray and TM. Um, Agreed 100%. I want to make a clarification here, which is sometimes on this podcast, what we're doing is trying to be in the shoes of the executives at the businesses who are making business decisions. And I will tell you, 
even though I would probably say that if I was in charge of Warner Brothers, what I would really like to do is not do business with J.K. Rowling and not give her money and not back a truck up to her, her mansion. I think if I said that, I'd probably get fired and replaced with somebody who would. And that's the part of the analysis here is that businesses <laughs> don't necessarily make decisions based on things like this. The fact that they've been in business with her all along, uh, including the last few years, shows you some of that. So we, we we spitball a little bit about what you would do creatively and what their challenges are. I, I think, and again, this is something that was implicit that I think we need to make explicit and will going forward. I think the other challenge here is not only is she a figure who has perhaps, as these letters indicate, really turned off a big portion of the fan base who connected to this property, so it's kind of a poison chalice at this point. But on top of that, you have the added issue, which is even if you paid her off to go away, the fact is you paid her, she's going to make money from it, and that poisons it further for a lot of people because she will then use all that money to support her causes, which, as our letter writers have eloquently said, make people feel like they are uh, a backlash is growing against them or that they don't have a right to exist in uh, well, around the world and especially in the UK. Yeah, and I think the other the, I mean, we'll see this um, my suspicion next week. There's a there's a reason. So. The J.K. Rowling question gets asked a lot to Warner Brothers executives, to Warner Media back in the like before it became Warner Brothers Discovery executives. This idea of like you know how do you navigate that, and they are always very political with their answer. Um, and to Jason's point about them operating as a business, I think next week we'll see you know kind of the other side of this, where a company like Disney gets involved in a very important issue. And says, you know, we operate as one of the single largest um, employers in Florida and we are taking a stand against this um, bill, the, the Don't Say Gay bill, and we're mm-hmm. taking a stand against it. And now they're embroiled uh, – sorry, the company is now embroiled in in this whole controversy. And that is not to say that Disney made the wrong decision. That is, is – it is to say – like Disney stood up for social issues, which Disney has done in the past under Bob Iger, um, uh, and, and just humanitarian issues. Um, but – this is the other side of it. And so when when companies who have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders are trying to figure out when and when not to get involved in, um, I guess you could call it non-business-centric uh, kind of um, positions uh, into those conversations, it gets really complicated. This is not to say that it is right. To stay out of it. It is to say that there is a monetary and fiduciary reason that sometimes these things do not go into a very public stage. Um, but on our podcast, we do not oversee, you know, multi-billion dollar conglomerate. <laughs> we don't have shareholders. And so we can, I think I speak for Jason and myself, like unequivocally condemn any transphobic comment made by anyone, including J.K. Rowling. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's she's flying the flag and she's like not shy about it. Um, I, yeah, I think I think there's a difference between trying to understand what businesses like Warner Media or sorry, Warner Brothers Discovery um, have to do in a sticky situation like this. But to the point of the letter writers making it clear that one of the reasons this is sticky is that is is this baggage that she's brought, that she's politically active in a way that has been really destructive to the trans community in the UK and around the world. Um, and there are a lot of sort of side stories out of that as well, that this has also had a deleterious effect on the fan base. And while I am a believer that uh, fan bases, like fan bases are not 
audience bases, if that makes sense, right? There are the fans and then there's the broad audience. And Harry Potter has a, a broad audience. I think that not having your hardcore fans being supportive makes it a lot harder for you to succeed. Uh, I think both of those things are true. So yeah. uh, I, I think our discussions about it are very much about the quandary that they're in. And so, right, fair enough. We should we should not give short shrift to one of the reasons this whole Harry Potter thing is a quandary. Because I think from the outside, if you looked at this and you looked at that, those books and those movies and you saw what was coming with streaming, you would be saying, well, who owns the rights to this? And why do they not have a plan to make a lot of money uh, for everybody about this. And it is, as a business case, kind of baffling. And also, yet when you get into the personalities, and this goes back to J.K. Rowling, kind of understandable. So we'll watch it and we'll continue to comment on it. But we can promise you this, listeners, that uh, when we talk about what the issues are with J.K. Rowling, we will not undersell one of the important issues with her, which is how her views have become public and political and have questioned the rights and existence of people, many of whom were her fans. So we will not uh, avoid that topic because that wasn't our intent. It was really just to move on to the fact that I think she's kind of a bad writer who's kind of sabotaging her own franchise. And maybe that's all for the best. But Warner Warner Brothers Discovery would rather make a truckload of money off of it. So that's the challenge for them. Maybe nothing will come of it, right? I, I do think that there's a non-zero possibility that she's so precious with her wizarding world that she doesn't want to let anybody else play in it. And at some point, Warner will just be like, okay, fine, we give up. As as wild as that is, I think it's. I don't think it's a high possibility, but I think that's non-zero that that she may be so difficult to work with that they just and and so toxic that they're just like forget it. <laughs> like, yeah. This isn't worth it. We have. I know we have a fiduciary duty, but this is a bad deal now for everybody concerned. So we're going to walk away. You know, we don't need to spend millions of dollars making more stuff that's not very well written that people don't care about and nobody wants to see. We'll see. Well, thank you to all our letter writers for writing in about that. Uh, yeah. And we apologize that that wasn't, wasn't our intent to undermine that other part of her <laughs> really, really wasn't. Um, I want to end with a couple other letters we got um, just cause it's fun to get letters. Thank you. I, I asked last time I shamed everybody and said, you didn't write letters. And then we got a lot of letters. I love it. Um, Chaz wrote in to say, what, why do you think that streamers like Disney Plus don't have popular clips of their shows and movies on their service? Rather than going to YouTube to watch the Avengers Assemble scene from Endgame or the Duel of the Fates from Phantom Menace, shouldn't Disney want to keep me on their platform without having to fast forward through a whole movie to find the part that I want to watch? Um, sorry for your loss of CNN Plus. Thanks, Chess. Uh, I love this idea, right? Like, like, why isn't there a like great moments, great clips uh, browser on any streaming service. If I go into a, a, into Marvel or into a particular TV show, like, like I I know that there's clips as marketing, but there's also clips as just stuff people want to watch. Can I watch this cool little part? Can you take me to the good part of the movie that I want to watch right now? Yeah, it's a great idea. I actually thought Disney wanted to launch with that at, at one point. And I, for some reason in my brain, I feel like that was the thing that they had brought up specifically was the idea of like short clips, but uh, I could be completely wrong. Uh, clearly, I am because it's but, been two two years. But it's a great um, idea. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, phenomenally. It's, I mean, Netflix like had this idea, and I, they I never really came to fruition. Or they, it actually it exists on their YouTube channel. I always thought it'd be better on the Netflix uh, thing. But the idea of working with um, the like the the long form essays to do videos on their like shows, 
Like work with them and then put them on Netflix. Yeah. Like if you watch yeah. a BoJack thing and you want to watch a 20 minute breakdown of like Bo- or 15 minute breakdown, so like we talked about to dumb, which was a, a blog on the internet. Right. And it's like, that's not where Netflix people are. Netflix people are watching Netflix. So get the video people like you just said. So get the video people who are doing things about Netflix content and put them on Netflix where all the Netflix people are like it makes much yeah, more sense. Yeah. And I think you can also, it's, it's like, you don't even have to be precious with it. You can do one, you can do the one on Netflix and YouTube. Like if you want to get, sure. you know, bang for your buck, like put, get the advertising revenue on one, then put the other one, the other, like it, the, it's just a simple thing to do, especially if it, I had this idea actually earlier, cause I was listening to some, um, lo-fi while I was working and it was this really good star Wars lo-fi that there's a YouTube channel. Like there's a one hour video. I was like, Disney could do this and they could uh-huh. put it on their service and then you'd be streaming, you'd be opening Disney Plus all day. You know what that would do for your engagement metrics when you're trying to get advertisers on it? Like just have, I mean, the the environmentalists yeah. who are listening to this probably hate me, but like that idea of like, hey, you, if you need to give people a reason to hang out on the app a little bit more, giving them more control over um, how they actually use it and giving them more options to stick around, not just watching long form or short form in terms of like, you know, 15 to 20 minute content, giving them something that adds to the experience of being a fan on the app. And also they get to like hang out and they can just bring something up and they can have more fun with it and they can build their own playlist and they can do whatever they want is going to work. Take some of that time away from YouTube. You already have them in the app. Now you just have to keep them there. And it's this idea of like, I think they think it's got to be an exclusive thing if we do this as like an original and it does not like you can have yeah. you can work with creators who are really good at it and be like, hey, we're also going to put this on Disney Plus or, or Netflix and you get like a certain fee um, and then plus you can host it on your own channel if you want. You're like at this point, you're just trying to increase awareness and you're trying to get more people engaged with it. You don't need it to be like, oh, well, we're not going to put, you know, Game of Thrones on YouTube. But if someone was doing a really cool like weekly Game of Thrones thing or was doing like a really cool SM Game of Thrones, if I was HBO, I'd be like, would you like to put that on our platform as well? So that way we can keep people when they're done watching Game of Thrones. Like it's yeah. just an obvious thing to do. Yeah, I, I think about DVDs and Blu-rays too, and it's the same yeah. thing, which is I'm always surprised. Like Disney Plus built in a special features area, and yet most of them don't have anything in it other than a trailer. And I don't get it because you could put you could put the clips in there because a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays do this where they're like, in addition to a chapter list, they're like some some DVDs will be like jump to the thing right the the avengers assemble scene because i know you want to watch it so let's let's go watch that right now why wouldn't you put all of that stuff in there too plus all the ancillary material i was i was rewatching turning red the other other day and i believe the documentary about the making of turning red does not appear in the other features of turning red because it's a separate feature like what are you doing why would that not be also linked from inside the feature that you just watched well and i wonder if there's this idea of like it's an increase it's another it's additional investment but i again as someone who like covered the creative world for a long time now works in ott like works in streaming uh, or works with companies i'd rather who stream um like creators will work through they 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 want to be paid and they should be paid for the work they're doing They're going to do it regardless for their for their for their own ad uh, supported business. And, there's, uh, and, and honestly, there's some access things that could potentially be really interesting there. Where if you find a creator that you really like, you could also do things like get them the stuff in advance, so that when the episode drops, their thing drops right after it. Right? Even if you don't and, d- exert editorial control over it, you could have a partnership that would get you content from them. And like, yeah, it just. I know well, that they're like, rushing again, to just get these things up and running now, but I feel like at some point you need to start thinking bigger picture about what's well, on your service. Yeah. And again, like Netflix does this on YouTube. 
Like this exists right. for Netflix on YouTube. Like they do this with <laughs> partners all the time. And because Netflix wanted, I mean, Netflix, if I, I wrote a whole story about this, but Netflix, like it, one of its core, uh, well, at the time, one of its core theses was growing its YouTube audience, which made a lot of sense. They were putting shows on YouTube. Like it was a whole thing, especially right. for kids, um, just to get the brand awareness out there on top of it. But and, and like, I'm not, and, and no one's suggesting, you know, be YouTube, like open it up to user content. Like, absolutely not. But having this idea of like, for all the shows that you're doing that you want for people to find an audience for, I promise you there are creators out there. I promise you who are doing like really smart mm -hmm. videos on this in really interesting directions who you can partner with and say like, hey, we think you're a cool voice. We think you have a nice idea what you're doing. You're editing your own stuff. Like we'll pay to host it, but you can keep it on your channel as well. We might put it on our channel because it's not an exclusive thing we're trying to do. It's just a way to keep people engaged and thinking about the brand. And if you own that attention it's going to wait, like the longevity of your franchises are going to be increased by, yeah, I love this idea. This Ju is a great idea. Yeah. Julia, I'm worried now that they're going to have to shut down this podcast because you're going to get hired away to build this content for somebody. <laughs> uh, but it is, it's a, it's a really good idea. And again, it's, these are big companies. I know that this is effort, but like it seems to me like for very minimal effort, you could get a big reward. And I, another example I wanted to give was um, Paramount Plus. Um, they do Survivor on CBS, and I watch Survivor. And they had, um, they don't seem to be doing it this year, but they, they've had in past seasons, they have the extra material, which is like the person who loses Survivor. The first thing they do is they like go taken for a medical check and then they're put up in a hotel because they have to come back to be on the jury. And so they did these little shorts that were actually pretty fun. They're like little mini episodes of Survivor outside of the game and they put them on YouTube. And for a while, they weren't even putting them on YouTube. They were just putting them on like Instagram. And I don't understand why they aren't, forgive me if I said this on this podcast before, but like, why is that not on Paramount Plus? Why, as a Survivor viewer, can I not go into Survivor and either have it rolled right in after the episode is over? Like, would you like to follow this person and see what happens when they get to the hotel mm -hmm. or, or have it there as an option? And it's like, the content exists and nobody's making the connection. I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand. There's so many. For, because if you're a fan and you love something, it's not just marketing of like, hey, awareness. You, that's marketing on the outside, right? But that internal marketing, which is, I have a fan. They just watch the show. They love the show. They can't get enough of it. But we only do one a week. But we can offer them something else that's tied in with it that will make them happy because they're really on a high because they just finished the show they loved. Do that. Like, do that. <laughs> okay. Chaz, thank you. Thank you for being sad that CNN died for us. I appreciate that the most. Uh, George wrote in to say, it seems these days the timelines are surprising me more and more. The moves, decisions, and announcements that big companies and influential people make happen so fast. Knowing that decisions are seemingly more about timing than inevitability, what are the chances that streamers start bidding for the Olympics? Okay. George, mm. thinking big picture, what if a streamer, instead of a network, bid for the Olympics? Well, I got, there's a problem with that, which is that NBC owns the Olympics for 10 more years through 2032. So don't look at it uh, anytime soon. Except, of course, it's not just NBC, right? It's also Peacock. So I think it'll be interesting in 10 years to talk about what the economics are of like how much you pay for Olympic coverage and what Olympic coverage looks like. But the advantage of having broadcast and streamer together is you can do both. And NBC's whole strategy, which used to be kind of like... NBC and then it was NBC and their cable channels is now NBC and the cable channels and Peacock. And so by the time these contracts come back up again, NBC will have had whatever it is, five more chances, four more chances to 
fine tune this. But I, I, I think if you have any thoughts about this uh, in, in general, this sort of dovetails with a lot of our sports conversations. But it's like, you know, at some point, the money is going to be on streaming and not on a traditional broadcast network in terms of all of these rights. Yes. I mean, the, <laughs> I think Zaslav made a comment that cable was just a giant subsidy for sports at this point. <laughs> Uh, and, he, and he's yeah. the king of cable. No. Uh, like he's he's the cable guy. But I I do think the events that can bring in a burst of subscribers every little bit. Uh, the Super Bowl, um, the Olympics, those are kind of the biggest ones. Are always going to be competitive. But I think the other thing going forward to think about with this type of event is a big part of who gets to have it and where it goes and how it's available to be streamed or watched. A lot of that comes from the league itself, or in this case, the international Olympic committee. We able to be like, we want to be here. You know, the NFL could always control to an extent where those games are going in their negotiations. Cause they said, we still want to be on broadcast. Like we still want to be on cable. We still want to be in a hundred homes. Like, like we, we a hundred million homes rather a yeah. hundred homes. I'm going to be in a hundred million homes. <laughs> uh, and, and they, so they say that, that is changing as streaming picks up and as the advertisers move over to streaming as well, you know, as they kind of figure out, well, where's that line where we kind of finally say, cool, we're going to, you know, pivot directly to OTT. I think it's around 40 to 45 million pay TV households, which is still many, many, many years off. Um, but I think when that happens, then the conversations about the Olympics and other sports become much, much more interesting. Um, but right now it's still very much like, if they if it goes to a network like NBC or CBS and they happen to have a streaming service, like that, you will see yeah. some of the content well, go there and some of the it, content be live. It just is a better fit, right? Because there are more yeah. places, more platforms. Sorry to use jargon, but like more platforms on which they can place parts of this, and that means broadcast TV is a platform, cable is a platform, streaming is a platform. Um, if you can make money uh, across all of them, that's going to be a better bid, right? Than somebody who can't. So I think it'll be a while, George. But keep thinking into the future. I appreciate it. It's good. Um, one one more letter, uh, Seth in the six one seven. Seth says, "I recently moved and decided to cut the cord, so I tried three different over the top services. Direct TV was the worst of the three. It took up to ten seconds to resolve an HD picture. YouTube TV and Hulu seemed." To each, not understand what a DVR is. YouTube TV will not remember what shows I've watched or where I currently am in a show. You know, the things that YouTube actually does pretty well, but their DVR is unlimited. Hulu is better at the remembering part, but they won't let me fast forward through commercials unless I pay more. That's not a DVR. That's video on demand. But their DVR is a limit on how many hours of not really DVR recordings I can keep. Ultimately, I decided to go with YouTube TV because I'm trusting Google to invest more in upgrading the service and because I was very happy with their Olympic coverage, doing a great job of recommending what I wanted to watch and making it easy to find specific events. The real test will be next football season, where I often like to record both broadcast games and swap back and forth. If I have to keep remembering where I was in each game, that will get real old real fast. I know Jason went through a similar exercise and settled on Hulu. I'm curious to hear how happy or unhappy he is with his decision. That's from Seth in the 617. Well, Seth, first, I have to correct you. I chose Fubo TV, which if you're a sports fan, originated as a sports streaming service and then added all the other channels later. As a result, it's got some very nice two-up, three-up, and four-up views if you want to watch multiple sporting events at one time. I had the Warriors game on and the Giants game on. And what else did I have? A soccer match, I think, on simultaneously last week. It was great. So, uh, And their DVR kind of behaves like you expect a DVR, too. It's not perfect, but I'd give it a look. And then you also didn't mention Sling. 
uh, depends on where you are and who's got locals and stuff like that. But um, Sling also has uh, uh, a DVR that I, what I found is that when I went back to Sling, it went to live TV. When I go back to Fubo, it, it remembers where I was and puts me back in even if it's now 30 minutes behind. So it's really hmm. sort of like how you define what a, DV- a DVR should do. But there are other choices out there. So if you're not super thrilled with YouTube, try the others. The beauty of this, and I know we've said this on this show, Julia, is it's that churn and burn thing. Like the beauty of this is it's not like cable where you spend so much time and money getting the cable guy to come to your house and you sign a year contract and you're stuck with cable. Just, you know, the NBA playoffs are partially on TNT this month for this last round that the Warriors are in. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to get Sling again for a month like I did for the baseball playoffs. (laughs) And it's just like I just paid Sling for a month. And then when the month's over, no more sling. I get those channels and then I, I dump them again. So try them out. A lot of them have trial deals too, where you can actually try it out for cheap or free. So Seth, keep trying. If you've got the stamina for it, if you can do it, try another couple of these services because maybe you'll find one that works for you. And this is when I'll do my PSA, which is if you go to suppose.tv, it's a great site that lets you put in the channels that are your priority. And then we'll show you what stre- what of these streaming services offer all of the channels that matter to you, because that makes a difference. If they don't have your locals or you need the MLB network or you need your regional sports network, it will limit your options. So um, we, we also, by the way, got a great letter from somebody about uh, the situation with sports rights in Denver. I'm going to hold that for next time, but it was a really good letter because I feel like, Julia, we could do this podcast for another 10 years and every couple of weeks we're going to have to talk about regional sports networks. <laughs> oh, there's there's RSN news already, like while we were recording this. But um, the only thing I'll add ends. is the only thing I'll add is this is you know to Jason's point about like month for month. This is exactly why the um, VMPVDs out of all of them are kind of saying like, should we go annual? Like, should we lock people into annual? Which is my way of saying that as we talk about streaming on this podcast, it's beautiful that we are just rebuilding cable, uh, but in the sky. That's truly, yeah. instead of the, instead of running things under the ground, we are now in the cloud. That is the biggest thing that has changed. Yeah. The, the, difference, the difference being, at least until they make everybody sign a year-long contract, is you can try them all out instead of having to have them physically connect a cable to your house. And only having one, right? Your cable company probably, in most places, didn't even have competition. These guys all have to compete. That said, I actually am on a quarterly plan with Fubo because it's saving me some money. So, yeah, see? It's already happening. <laughs> That's what they'll do. They'll give you a, a, a big break if you sign up for a whole year. But they'll still, they're still going to have trials, right? They're still going to do it because they, they know that they can steal you away from the competition. All right. Big show. A um, lot going on. Thanks to everybody who wrote in, especially our friends in the UK who wrote in to keep us honest. We appreciate it. If you have questions for us, uh, maybe you'd like to complain about your app of choice or cable company or local sports team. Those will work. I would love that. Yeah. Email us downstream at relay.fm. Tweet at us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. There's also a question about why we say love to your mothers. We'll we'll, we'll deal with it later. Uh, You can find Julia on Twitter at loudmouthjulia. I'm Jay Snell on Twitter. Of course, Julia's over at parrotanalytics.com where she uh, writes white papers. She also writes at puck.news sometimes. There's Julia's everywhere. She's on podcasts. It's a whole thing. I uh, write a lot of stuff at sixcolors.com too. And until next time, (laughs) Julia... uh, you be the captain, I'll be the lighthouse. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. Have a good one, Jason. <laughs>